Brown, who worked around the State House in 2019, knew the name Larry Householder. I can't overemphasize how much power the guy had. I mean, like he, you know, had effectively unlimited money and, you know, a united caucus and a huge majority. And he could basically could do what he wanted. He was one of the big three, the governor, the Senate president, and the House speaker, who each helped control which laws passed and which ones didn't. And Larry ruled his chamber with an iron fist. Known for his brash attitude and take-no-prisoners approach to politics, his allies described him as the kind of guy you want on your side in a fight. His enemies called him a bully. And when you come here, you got to put on your big bully pants, you got to pull your bitchy out of your mouth, and you got to make tough decisions. That's Larry in 2019. At his best, or maybe his worst. It depends on who you ask. But it's Householder at peak political power. Householder at a time when everyone who was anyone knew the rule politician could make or break you. That all changed in the early morning hours of July 21st, 2020. The arrest of one of the most powerful people at the Ohio State House, Larry Householder. Federal prosecutors accused him of taking a big bribe to bail out two nuclear power plants. Over the next two special episodes of Ohio Politics Explained, we're telling the story of how a rural farmer became one of the state's most powerful politicians. And we'll explain the strange and sometimes unbelievable story of how that man found himself on trial for the largest public corruption case in Ohio history. This is episode one, The Comeback Kid. Understand Larry Householder, we have to travel back to 1996, the year he first ran for the state legislature. It was a time when Republicans were surging into power across the country. Newt Gingrich had flipped the U.S. House for the first time in 40 years by promising to reform politics. He called it a contract with America. And former lawmaker Gene Krebs wanted to do the same for Ohio. So the Election of 1994 was a 14.78 shift in the index, and that was when we were able to take control. And if your listeners really want to get bored, I can really tell them about the index sometime. <laughs> but we took the House, but there were still other seats that we thought we could take. Of that in 96, one of those was the one then achieved by Larry Householder. And then Larry came in, and I was asked to mentor him. The two men were both from rural districts and seemed to share a similar outlook on what it meant to be Republican. So in 95, 96, I thought Republicans meant reform. But his leadership team didn't see it that way, especially when it came to Krebs' plans to deregulate the liquor industry. In March of 1997, I was summoned to House Leadership's office, and I was informed that I had to stop all reform efforts, all of them. There was no discussion. I tried pushing back, and they reminded me of the fact that at the lobbying Association Christmas Party, they all took great turns mocking me for my efforts at reform. Krebs was pissed. I left that meeting, as you can imagine, with steam coming out my ears. I went down to my office. I had my staff contact Larry's office, see when Larry could come over. And I said, let's make you, I told him what happened. 
you need to become speaker because the people who leadership has previously chosen to become speaker will just continue the status quo. They define go along, get along. And so we began laying the groundwork in March of 97 for him to become speaker. When he'd been in the legislature like three months. Three months. But we knew that then Speaker Joanne Davison would be leaving at the end of 2000. And the people who were currently the forerunners for it were go along, get along, status quo. And I could not stand the idea of that. And that's what happened. This farmer outmaneuvered an Ashland car dealer named Bill Harris for the speaker's gavel. They initially cut a deal to share the job, but Harris never held that gavel. Not even for one day. It was a big deal. There was a bias at the time against rural legislators, and Larry experienced that in spades. It didn't matter if you had a college degree or published articles in scientific journals. None of that mattered. I was the dumb farmer from Preble County, and that would not shake loose. Larry was immediately written off as just being another Appalachian, and that perturbed him. And if you know anything about Larry Householder, you know he wasn't about to let that go. So you got to understand something. Larry felt very strongly that Appalachian had been badly used by the rest of the state and the rest of the country, that the charcoal industry had come in, stripped all the trees off the hillsides, hillsides had eroded, destroyed their waterways. Then coal mining came in, left streams so acidic if you walked in them, it would eat your shoes up, leaving, you know, this, what few good jobs there were, every, all the men came down with black lung disease at age 40. So, yeah, it was high pain, but short-lived. And he really felt strongly that he could make a difference and elevate up Appalachia, but also elevate up the inner city communities and basically everybody in Ohio. And he saw himself as a hero, or maybe more accurately, a warrior. He pushed for increased school funding, especially for rural schools, pushed back against vouchers, shepherded a conservative agenda that included passing Ohio's first concealed carry law, tort reforms, and made Ohio the first state to defund Planned Parenthood. Joe Hallett of the Columbus Dispatch described him as a guy who sleeps less than five hours a night and is always in a hurry to go someplace. For those four years he was speaker, actually ran the state. Then he ran into trouble. I'm not talking about the trouble that got his home raided by the FBI in 2020. I'm talking about another investigation back in 2004. Larry's mistake was, I believe, he relied too much on paid staff who told him, oh, you can do this, you can do that, you can do the other thing. In other words, they made him impatient to do things. They increased his impatience. And that right there, that burning desire to change things, which arguably came from a good place, contributed, in Gene's mind, to Larry's downfall. He's an adult, but we all tend to, you know, as Shakespeare always wrote, we're all foils for those around us. And I put a fair amount of the blame on his paid staff he had at the time, who encouraged him to, in my opinion, not be patient enough. The rising Republican star had to leave the legislature because of term limits, but an investigation by the FBI and IRS into his campaign fundraising practices likely kept Larry from running for state auditor in 2006. But Republicans didn't think Larry was gone for good. Then Ohio GOP chairman Robert Bennett told the Columbus Dispatch, quote, do I think Larry's career is over? Certainly not. Not by a long shot. Larry's young enough to regroup. Never being charged with anything related to that investigation helped too. 
And in 2016, the Appalachian farmer ran as a GOP candidate for the 72nd House District. But Larry didn't make a quiet return to politics, no. He surprised the political class once again by landing a speaking honor at the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. Please welcome former Speaker of the House for the State of Ohio, the Honorable Larry Householder. Householder introduced a video tribute to George Voinovich, Ohio's former governor and U.S. senator who died earlier that summer. He was not a member of the House, okay? And he was chosen to give the welcoming address. Now, think about that for a moment. Isn't that interesting? It was not Joanne Davidson who had just worked herself, you know, fingers to the bone, bringing that convention to Ohio, but it was Larry. How did that happen? Even then, state auditor Dave Yost was perplexed. He wrote an op-ed for Cleveland.com saying he was, quote, floored by the choice, and giving Joanne the honor of introducing it was a no-brainer. But it wasn't Joanne Davidson at that podium. It was Larry. Householder entered the state house for the second time, and he was quick to make his ambitions clear. He referred to himself as House Speaker in the recording for his office voicemail over the objections of then-Speaker Cliff Rosenberger. And the FBI says he was talking with his inner circle about how to elect Republicans who would support him as Speaker. But it wasn't a coronation. Just like the last time Larry became Speaker, someone else wanted the job. A guy named Ryan Smith who actually had the gavel for a couple of months after Rosenberger resigned under his own federal investigation. Republicans were divided on who they wanted to lead the House. So Householder went to the Democrats. He built a coalition with the minority party and got the job in January of 2019. Here's former House Minority Leader Amelia Sykes on that now infamous deal. I think the primary thing that the members of this caucus were drawn to was an ability to actually participate in the legislative process. Democrats were, and still are, outnumbered at the State House, but Sykes didn't want that to mean they got no say whatsoever. She saw amendments being tabled without debate, the way witnesses were being treated in committees. It was just a place where, and it was a culture that just did not allow for just inclusion of all the voices. You don't have to accept them, you don't have to like them, you just have to allow for the open space to be there. So she backed Householder, and among his first orders of business was to pass a law called House Bill 6. Now, without getting into the weeds, the legislation made a number of significant changes to Ohio's energy policy, including a plan to collect a billion dollars from Ohio customers over seven years to bail out these two nuclear power plants. The money would be tacked on to utility bills as extra fees. So you're probably asking, who owned these two power plants along Lake Erie? It's a Fortune 500 company from Akron called First Energy Solutions. It's a company that was not based in Householder's District. Now, the question for you is then, why did he go so strong for the utilities? It's because he had natu no natural base of money. If you're going to run from one of the three C's, okay, you have a natural base of millionaires who can donate money to you that you, be you can begin. Larry did not have that. So who did he turn to? Utilities. He was already friendly towards coal because of where he came from. Utilities were heavy on coal and heavy on coal investments. 
So they looked to him as being a natural ally. Or, as federal prosecutors allege, they saw a co-conspirator. Passing this controversial piece of legislation wasn't easy. It took weeks of negotiating and late night phone calls. And at one point, there was even talk of using a state plane to fly representatives back for a critical vote at taxpayer expense. And the committee hearings, they got a little strange. Here's Democratic Representative Casey Weinstein. I was actually, and I went on the record for this, I was actually supportive of helping our nuclear power industry. I was not against that. But when we would ask for you know, some data or some clarity in the committee process about, okay, but do do they really need this money? We could never get that. It was just like, no, we're not going to be digging into that level of detail on this thing. And that was incredibly frustrating. It was Casey's first year as a state lawmaker, and he thought that was, well, weird. Not only weird, but as a brand new legislator, it was like, is this how this happens? I mean, boy, people are right to have their such cynicism about the legislation that comes out of the state house because this is terrible. Like, there's no amount of public input that's going to matter here. This is a closed loop. It felt like House Bill 6 was inevitable. Even Sam Randazzo, the head of the commission meant to watch out for ratepayers, was pushing for it. I remember, I think it was Dave Leland whispering to me at the time, this is really bizarre. Then there were the attack ads. TV, radio, and mailers flooded into districts of Democrats and Republicans who didn't support Larry's plan. And some of those accusations were pretty nasty. One ad against Casey accused him of breaking the law. I believe the ad, it was so effective, it was a complete lie. It also cost a ton of money. Generation Now and other dark money groups spent about half a million dollars attacking Casey in less than a month. There were ads running on NFL football games against me. And I was like, holy shit. That was a holy shit moment for me. According to the FBI, Larry was very involved with the groups running those ads. Here's a text message prosecutors released from Householder to Jeff Longstreth, one of the men arrested in connection with the case. Larry says, quote, when does the Gen Now TV message change? I think it's burnt in. Well burnt in. We think he's talking about an ad with a power plant worker who is driving a car and explaining all the bad things that would happen if the nuclear power plants closed. Longstreth, who has already pleaded guilty, replied by telling Householder that polling showed the ad was working. Of course, Householder texted back, I'm just sick of seeing that poor son of a bitch drive that pickup truck down the road and cry about losing his job. Householder's text messages and phone calls with members of his own party were colorful. Former state rep Rick Carfagna declined to be interviewed for this podcast, but dozens of his messages got released as part of a public records request. Here's one he sent to the former Ohio director of Americans for Prosperity. Quote, after every conversation I had with someone on this, I felt like I needed a shower. And that he, quote, never experienced such pressure for any other bill. Another no vote, Representative Dave Greenspan, got a direct message from Householder himself. It read, quote, I want you to remember, when I needed you, you weren't there. Twice. He could shut you down completely, and ultimately, that could really hurt your constituents. He could shut you out of the capital budget. He could shut you out of getting anything that you wanted to get done. It was, as Casey put it. It really was very Trumpian in how he operated. 
The no votes like Carfania and Greenspan and Weinstein might not have liked the bill, but they couldn't stop it. Governor Mike DeWine signed it into law on July 23rd, 2019. I mean, our goal all along has been to save the nuclear plants, save the jobs, but also to keep the cost of energy down, to keep the cost, the utility cost down for the ratepayers. And I think I think House Bill 6 does that. Larry had won. the guy could do anything he wanted to do. Householder could pass any bill, kill the career of any Republican, and run roughshod over the Ohio Senate. There was one time on the House floor where we were passing each other, and he came up to me and said, hey, great job on HB6. You killed wind. You killed wind power. The implication was that Weinstein's resistance forced Larry to get more votes from Republicans. And that meant cutting the small provisions for wind power. He just looked at me and said that and then walked by. And I was like, man, that was ice cold. Ice cold. The fight wasn't over yet, though. Environmental groups teamed up with an unlikely partner, oil and gas, to try and put the new law on the ballot for voters to overturn. They wanted Ohio voters to decide whether to spend their hard-earned cash bailing out these two nuclear power plants. But Larry and the supporters of House Bill 6 weren't about to let that happen. If you lived in Ohio during the summer of 2019, you might remember these ominous ads on TV. The Chinese government is quietly invading our American electric grid, intertwining themselves financially in our energy infrastructure. The ad was designed to scare people and stop them from signing the petitions. And it seems to have worked, at least a little, because the folks collecting signatures never got enough. The fact that Generation Now spent more than $500,000 hiring national signature firms so they couldn't work for the opposition didn't hurt either. And by early 2020, Ohioans against corporate bailouts gave up. Larry had won again. But his victory was short-lived. On the morning of July 21st, 2020, two days shy of the law's one-year anniversary, federal agents raided his farmhouse. The indictment laid out a years-long bribery campaign that federal prosecutors say put Householder in the Speaker's chair for the express purpose of passing that nuclear bailout. It was stunning. Every political reporter, every lobbyist, I'd venture to say every elected official in Ohio can tell you where they were the moment they heard Householder had been arrested. Casey was in his office sipping on his morning cup of coffee. I read that and the highest level of shock, the most profound shock I've ever had in my life because he felt to me like an unstoppable force. He felt he had consolidated power in the House at that point already. He felt untouchable and inevitable. The guy was like Thanos to me. <laughs> He's just this all-powerful guy. Utter shock to my system. So what happened next? We'll give you the answer in episode two, Fall of the House. <laughs> <laughs>